Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where our goal is to help you find health and community through movement. I'm Molly Herford, a writer, coach, and yoga teacher. And I'm Peter Glassford, an endurance coach and kinesiologist. Every week, we're talking to athletes and experts who can help you lead your best active, adventurous life. Whether you're a gravel racer, a marathon runner, or you just got out on your first bike ride yesterday, we're here cheering you on. You can also visit us online at consummateathlete.com for coaching information and training tips, nutrition advice, yoga flows, bike skills, and more. And now, let's get into this week's episode. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? Well, winter has found us. We were trying know, to hide. Tried to go slightly further south, so we've been dodging the snow from Canada for a bit here, but uh, it is it has come. Yeah, I mean, not as much as it sounds like there is in Canada, but you know what? Where we are, we actually I was actually running around cross-country skiers yesterday on my long run. So mm-hmm. that's that's Some where of we're those, at. Yeah, the hardcore cross-country skiers that are out always on the first anywhere there's snow basically. If you go to a trail system, there's like that one track of of, of skiing. And, and I don't think I'm that guy, but there's hardy souls that just they love the cross-country ski and they've been waiting for it. I appreciate it where we are in Ontario where even when the snow has melted to where it's like half rocks and half snow, you'll still see tracks and you'll still see the odd guy just like traipsing through just doing what he can to keep the dream alive. Mm-hmm. Like and more I, power to them. I think it, like a lot of things, it's, it's more on the front end that you see the real keeners, right? Towards True. the end of the winter, no one wants to be out there anymore. But uh, You're right. It's definitely yeah, the I November, mean, December snows for sure. Yeah. So there's that. So I hope everyone's trucking along here with their training, whatever that looks like uh, in this new year. Yeah. I have to admit, I'm starting to have a bit of like FOMO of the off-season people or of the FOMO about the off-season people right now. Um, where, you know, there's all this talk about like, oh, your long runs in the winter when you're doing your base don't need to be that, or your off season don't need to be very long or, right. you know, and your enjoying... coach David just did uh, a po- or a, a podcast, their podcast, which is the some work all play yeah, podcast. The swap yeah. podcast. And so they, they talked about like, it, it's not really that long. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that podcast probably made me have a little bit of FOMO hearing from your own coach about how they're like not giving anyone over 14 miles. And you're like, oh, no, I just had to do 30 of them and then 20 of them. Right. And these are 14 miles for people who are like 100 mile racers and and generally quite elite level runners. Right. So just to put that in context that they're not doing, you know, 100 mile runs every week in the yeah. in the winter um so yeah it's, it's just kind of funny seeing everyone else kind of enjoying the the off season and maybe doing some some play time and stuff and i knew this was this was what was going to happen when i signed up for a race in february we I, talked I about it we talked about it i said it i've said it on the podcast but uh definitely now that we're into january the february 12th uh, 100 miler is becoming more and more real um there's part of me that like i admit was sort of like oh cyclocross worlds is going to get canceled this race is going to get canceled i'm not going to have to do it it's going to be great yeah and there's then... probably a, a mindset now that uh, a lot of us are a deal with right where we're assuming that we get out of out of these things yeah yeah right? we've and had two years of pretty much getting out of uh yeah, I could out see... of these big scary goals yeah i mean i think we're all gonna have to deal with a bit of that i, I don't want to say anxiety but you know just that you know that mental battle of like hopefully this gets canceled and it's not on me you know you mm-hmm. know and then i don't have to to put myself out there like you know you'd be sad if it got canceled but there is just kind of that little tiny voice in your head that's like but would that be so bad so i'm definitely starting to to feel the a bit of nerves it's i was just saying before we hit record that it's a lot easier to feel super confident about a hundred miler when you're six months away from the hundred miler mm-hmm. uh four weeks out from it though it's uh it's suddenly becoming more and more uh big 
Yeah, and I was telling you just before we started recording in the two uh, latest training plans I've put up in the Training Peak store, which are two big bucket list plans that we have the Unbound Gravel uh, plan, which starts, you know, uh, essentially January 1st and you can join it whenever you want. It helps you get on ramped uh, or started uh, at any point. So we have the unbound plan and the Leadville plan. And in both of those plans, the last four weeks, the last sort of month, uh, you know, there's not a lot of fancy business. I think that's your word for it, isn't it? Or, or the fancy business is the easy one. But yeah, in any fancy case, fancy business is just the everyday. It's the uh, nothing fancy, all business. Okay. So there's lots of fancy business in the yeah. last month, but what that means is there's not a lot of these massive, you know, 100-mile simulation rides. We've sort of done a lot of that, right? A lot of the endurance gains, benefits, you know, adaptations take a bunch of weeks. They take a while. They last for quite a while as well. So that's, that's sort of that peak. So you're you're getting into that taper or peak or just don't get too tired before the race sort of phase. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the only thing I have other like that's big still is I do have a six hour in two weeks or week and a half now, I guess. Um, and that one is primarily just so I don't hit the start line of a hundred mile or having not started a race for like almost three years. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's more of like a mental thing and not like a. I, yeah. It sounds ridiculous it, to be well, like a the, casual six hour. Yeah, but, it's the mm-hmm. eternal question. I mean, six hours when you're going to run for run slash walk for 30 uh, i guess everything's relative right and it's not that that uh, serious i guess well and that one is also we really specifically picked that one it's local ish it's you know 45 minutes from home it allows us it's a 5k loop for six hours which sounds bananas um but it really helps us dial in some crewing stuff and just kind of make sure that everything's working um i was also just saying to Kara, uh, my friend karen uh who's going to be helping pace me down at this hundred miler that uh i definitely had a bit of a like panic buying moment today as well where i'm suddenly like thinking oh my gosh what if i need rain pants what if it's raining um you know i might need pants that I can run in when the weather is getting like really cold and really wet and it's you know at night and it's freezing so now I've ordered these like Gore-Tex pants um, and some different socks and some more tailwind because I have no idea how much of that I'm going to need so uh, yeah the the pressure's on um, but you know it's I'm still really really excited about it I'm still really looking forward to it Um, and on the note of big scary goals we have today's podcast guest um so we actually have a woman I went to high school with, Kendra Allenby, is on. She is a cartoonist. She's done cartoons for The New Yorker, among many other uh, outlets. So, you know, anyone who knows cartoons knows kind of The New Yorker is sort of like the place you want to be if you're Yeah, it's often on the cover, I guess, too. Uh, it's just everywhere. Yeah. Like, those are the cartoons. Um, so she's, she's a fabulous artist. Um, I remember her being a wicked fast cross-country runner in high school, but she actually kind of left that behind even you know before high school was over and really embraced through hiking so she recently did the continental divide trail she's on pacific crest she's done all of these like massive through hikes um while still you know living a a pretty like normal quote-unquote life she lives actually she lives in new york city which we were talking about as sort of funny to have someone who wants to spend six months off the grid, uh, you know, doing these through hikes, but then is living in the city the rest of the time. Well, I could see this, you know, really some of these, this conversation, you know, everyone's now, you know, into bike packing and these bigger Mm -hmm. rides, if not, you know, week long, weekend long, uh, if not into months, some of these things, right, for bike packing and backpacking. 
Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there should be a lot of, you know, how does she do it? Is this probably on everyone's mind, right? Yeah. There's so many good takeaways in does this. Does she draw cartoons while she's driving? She does. Or, or yeah. While she she's actually walking. had like a fantastic <laughs> newsletter she was sending out during the Continental Divide. It was very, uh, you know, uh, it didn't come out regularly or anything, but every once in a while, because you do stop at towns to restock and stuff. So sometimes she would have time to, you know, sit down in a cafe and quickly um, put together a little newsletter like on her phone and oh, just kind of blurbs wow. and stuff. It was really cool. It was really fun watching her uh, through the through the months while she was doing that. And it was just such a cool conversation because we, we got into some practical stuff in terms of how to pack for through hiking or even how to think about prepping for through hiking, which, as Peter said, can totally apply to bikepacking or any of these bigger, longer events. Um, but then also just some more philosophical stuff like why are we all doing these things that we do and the different ways that we're competitive with ourselves and with others and you know what you can learn out on the trail and what you can't mm -hmm. um, I think it was it's honestly one of my favorite conversations I've had um, and it's it was really interesting to, to catch up with someone who knew me um, very like from a very different context yeah it's good to see where people's journey has taken them right and I think you know, as part of what we're curious about is, you know, there's the co competitive piece that's maybe a phase of the year, a day of the year. Uh, but then how do we sprinkle these other movement pieces into into this, right? And I love that this has, as you say, united uh, your community back to, to grade school even, right? Mm. Uh, which is sort of neat too, that the movement sort of brought that together, so... Yeah. So and we is, had intended you were you were going to meet up we and were, actually do a hike. Yeah, we were supposed to do this interview while hiking, but obviously with the current uh, Omicron situation, we right. did not get to do that. But it was still a really really fun catch up. And she is actually doing a couple cartooning courses. Uh, some of them are based in New York, but I think actually she's probably going to have to go virtual for a fair sure. bit of them at this sure. point. So I will include links to that in the show notes. Uh, I would definitely check it out if you have any kind of artistic hopes and dreams for the coming year, which I definitely do. Peter got me a How to Draw Baby Animals book for Christmas, and right. I've been diligently working on my baby seals. Yeah. Uh, so I might I mean, have to... it seemed like you got pretty good there all of a yeah, sudden. Yeah, totally, totally nailed the baby seal. Now I got to work on the, uh, the baby llama. Yeah, I mean, I can put a link to the book I got, not that it was that good, but it was for like six-year-olds or something too, and, and I think you can erase it as well. Yeah, 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 it's dry erase, and also, I'm just saying, it is BS that that was designed for like four-year-olds. <laughs> there is no way that a four-year-old is doing anything other than like scribbling over it. We can even, we the, can test this. So this is the competition coming out in the hobbies the that are supposed to be not competition. to come yeah. out because I'm going to challenge our niece in the summer oh. <laughs> when she hits four years We're old. To... test it against the yeah. six-year-olds, yeah, okay. It's going to be really embarrassing. We'll share the results. Okay, so Cartooning and backpacking. Yep, yep. All right, let's get into it. Enjoy this episode with Kendra. Welcome to the podcast. First of all, I'm so excited. It's funny. I don't think I've ever had anyone from high school on the podcast before. So fantastic. <laughs> Facebook may be many things, but it is this funny thing about making those connections easier to go back to. So I'm so glad to be on here. Yeah. It, well, it's funny. I always talk about on the show how unathletic I was in high school and how this, this like, you know, random events that have made me into this endurance athlete just would have made no sense to someone who knew me back then. So it's always really funny to like reconnect with people from high school and be like, oh yeah, I do sports now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and if I remember you were in cross country in high school, right? I was, which actually I think ties into this. I, I did cross country and I did cross country hard until I did it so hard that I found a place in myself that I did not like anymore because it was too competitive. And so I think part of my love of these long trails is that it, it has that epic endurance quality, but it doesn't touch off that part of me that just gets too into it. But I decided 
is less fun to live with. So. Oh my gosh. I love that. And it's, I would actually say, I feel sort of the same way, like the bigger endurance stuff that I'm, I'm doing now is largely because it feels like it's much more you versus you instead of you versus anyone else. Like you can't yeah. race someone else in a hundred mile or really like that's pretty much just you getting through it. And I mean, obviously the same applies to your, your hiking. So let's, let's maybe back. Okay. Give me, give me some context. Give me like the, how you became this epic hiker here. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I think there's always this really this delight in using my body, which happened right in high school. Um, honestly, the reason I got into cross country is because I, I started in middle school and in middle school, you just kind of want to be good at something. And in middle school, to be good at cross country, you just said to be slightly more masochistic than other middle school kids, which is pretty easy because middle school kids are not particularly ready to be in that much pain yet. But then in high school, everyone else sort of caught up and was willing to do that to their bodies. And that made it much harder. Um, and I think was one of the reasons I decided to move out of it, but also the, I remember in high school, there were um, the older high schoolers that we were looking up to, right? As, as I was a freshman and a sophomore, the seniors were cracking jokes about how the ones who were going to run in college, how they weren't going to have knees by the time they were in their mid to late twenties. And I remember thinking that is not, that is not what I want. So I knew there was this, there's this part that really loved um, being successful at physical activity and also this part of me that just loved moving and using my body. And then there's this also this part that's often connected, but also different just about loving being outdoors and just wanting to be outdoors all the time as much as possible. Um, yeah. And so the, and then the third part, I think is this idea of, of traveling, of moving through space and time. So I find it feels like finding a better and better fit. And for me, this sort of long form, long distance hiking has been a great fit because it really you can set it up so that you can be outside for just tremendous amounts of time, you know, an entire summer, all day, every day, 24 hours, day after day after day, um, which I love. You set it up so you become just this like golden god in terms of your body, right? You just, you just are doing something that's pretty sustainably healthy for it over and over again. And then it ticks the box of sort of moving through the world in a way that is incredibly appealing because you have all these you're traveling, you're seeing new things and meeting new people and having different things happen, but at a very manageable pace. Um, mm -hmm. And the other thing that I get from it I just, in this is you limit your choices in a way that's very calming. And so I feel like doing short, linking up shorter things, there's just so many more choices in between everything you do, but deciding on one hulking thing to do for six months, for five months, for four months feels, it's just so relaxing to not be making micro decisions. You're on one path, you know, the, the CDT, the trail I did most recently has more decisions you have to make about paths, but all in all, you know, you don't have to, uh, you make one huge decision that governs your life for a while. And I think there's something really nice about that. Oh, I love it. Okay. What was your first like multi-day, like longer adventure? Yeah. So when I graduated college, I really wanted to hike the Pacific Crest Trail in its entirety and the Pacific Crest Trail, right. Just to maybe focus people. There's three long trails in the United States. Um, they're called the Triple Crown within the hiking community. And they are the Pacific Crest Trail, which goes from the border of Mexico to the border of Canada through California and then Oregon and Washington. And there's the Appalachian Trail, which is the most traveled and most well-known. And that goes along the East Coast, uh, starts in Georgia and goes all the way up to Maine. And then there's the Continental Divide Trail, which goes along the Rockies, the Continental Divide and starts in New Mexico and ends in Montana. But these are the three big long trails in the United States. So at some point in high school, I heard about the Pacific Coast Trail and I knew like, that's what I wanted to do. I had a friend and we talked a lot about how much we wanted to do that trail. Um, and she was able to 
that year when we were graduating, but because of my graduation date, there wasn't a way that I could do the trail, the entire trail that summer. But I did convince my partner at the time to do two months on it. And it ended up, we ended up doing one month on it because uh, he got, we ended the trail in a, in a hospital with a doctor telling me that there was no way I was taking this guy back out on the trail because he had a staph infection and was maybe going to die. So, oh dear. That was the end of it, but it was really a marvelous time. We actually, we also started this trail. I had a fair amount of backpacking experience, but only in sort of five day chunks. And we started this trail and we, uh, we have our little like cute, uh, before pictures. So we got our friend to take our pictures before and we're all fresh faced and clean and have all of our gear strapped on. And our friend walks us up the trail for an hour after, you know, he drops us off and then he waves goodbye and we march happily off into the forest. And about 15 minutes after that, the trail goes under two feet of snow. And then that becomes six feet of snow. And for the next eight days in desolation wilderness, uh, there were, I think there's four days when we didn't see another person. We were oh, just geez. map encompassing. And this was before the GPS. So we just had, and I had good map encompass skills. So we were able to map encompass through the snow, through desolation wilderness. And it wasn't too dangerous because you know, you can always push back to Tahoe, which is what we ended up doing when we didn't have enough food to continue. But <laughs> it was one of those trips that it, nothing went as planned and yet it was fantastic. And so that, after doing that, I knew eventually I wanted to go back and do the whole thing. But then it was my partner's turn to choose an adventure. So we actually did a, <laughs> a, couple, a little while after that, we did a bike trip across the country. We bicycled. Um, and so that was sort of the beginning of loving this long form travel. Oh my gosh. I feel like that's almost the best is when you have like the first like awful experience and just like everything that can go wrong goes wrong. Cause then you like, and you still want to do it. That means you really like it instead of, I mean, almost going back to like when you're in middle school and liking cross country, when you're winning or like doing well, it's easy to like it. It's just, yeah. do you like it when it sucks? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, I mean, how, how does one make space in their life for these huge long adventures? Like, can you explain just like how you've set up your life so that this actually is realistic? Cause I know a lot of people like wonder how the heck they can figure out how to make this happen. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the, there's a bunch of practicalities, right? So one thing is that I've really, I'm a cartoonist, I'm a freelance cartoonist, and there's lots of things about being a freelancer these days in the United States that are huge pain in the ass, but it does mean that you get to make your own calls. Um, at tax time, it's terrible, but there's other times. Yes. A great thing, <laughs> as you're um, so I've really done that, but my partner, uh, same partner from before, he does not have that, you know, he works at a, uh, he's a data analyst and he works at a job. He's got a computer. He's got a whole, um, a much more normal setup that way. And so for me, I really made my life so that I can make these opportunities happen as much as possible for him. Um, he is, you know, I think it's not a bad thing to have sort of a niche job that you're really quite good at. So even if your employers don't want to let you leave for that long, it's still harder for them to find someone else to fill your position. And I think that's where it's tough because you have to be. So when we went um, in 2018, we hiked the entire Pacific Crest Trail and we had to take six months off to do that all together. And so he was expecting that when he told them that they were going to say, okay, it's been fun, but, but it's over. And instead they said, we really would rather you didn't do that. And he said, it doesn't matter. I'm going to do it anyway. And that's when they, they caved and they said, we'll have you back afterwards. And they did cut off our health insurance, right? This is a problem in the United States. Health insurance is something you have to juggle here. Um, but at that point, I mean, this landscape is always changing, but at that point we were able to get catastrophic insurance for while we were doing it. Um, 
But I think these are the main pieces, right? There's, there's job. And the question is, can I think more people than think they can could probably ask their bosses for a leave and come back. And I, my hope is that that continues to change. My hope is that people who can do that, do that. So people start getting used to the fact that, you know, there's more reasons than, than having a kid or a sick relative to take off a large chunk of time from work. Oh, and I think 100%. normalizing that would be huge. Yes, absolutely. I think you're right. I think most people are scared of asking partially because they're afraid that they're going to end up fired and partially because the idea of not working is actually like legitimately like terrifying for people. Um, I mean, do, do you find that like when you're out on one of these, these longer ones, do you have like a, a detox time for the first like seven days where you're like, Oh my God, I need to be dropped. Where's my email? Oh geez. My inbox. Like, I think certainly. Yeah. I remember on the PCT, there's two weeks where I didn't, it was just quiet. I didn't listen to any podcasts. I didn't listen to anything. Like it was just I, I live in New York City and had been living a very fast-paced life here. And it took that long for the wheels to stop just spinning like crazy and to slowly slow down. Um, and that that space felt really magnificent. I mean, I kind of cheat. Honestly, a lot of this stuff, as you know, with any of these long distance things or just sort of living in general, a lot of it is mind games. And so one way that I get around this mind game is I do semi-work on trail. So I draw cartoons while I'm on trail. And because those cartoons, I'm either trying to sell them or figuring out how I can sell them later there is this feeling of not uh, leaving work completely. That's a good question I should ask my partner because he is not able to work in that way at all on trail. Mm -hmm. But another thing that people often do is they see these kinds of trails, you know, as they're, uh, this is the other hack about a long distance trail is you have uh, ready-made meaning that you've basically imported into your life. So even though often we put our meaning into our work and you've taken that work away, the meaning of, it's still a goal oriented one foot in front of the other. You're moving forward every day. It's, it feeds a lot of the same things for better or for worse. I think that there's something really to interrogate there about why I need that so much in the first place, but it does make it easier. Oh yeah. That's it's funny. We were just recording a podcast where I went on like a rant about why everything needs to have a really intensive why instead of just because it's there. Um. <laughs> yeah, I thought a lot about on this last trip that if I had, so on this last trip, it was four and a half months. And if I had taken four and a half months and just been backpacking, but not in a straight line that went this impressive distance that could be easily shown to people on a map and that had a name that people understood, that some people understood and could wrap their minds around the sort of the epic, the accomplishment of it, I think it would have been much harder psychologically for me and also for anyone else to grasp why the hell I would do that, right? And I think that there's something really to ask about why I personally, what I need is is this, there's sort of a recognition of doing a task that's recognizable. Right, um, right. Instead of just going to New Mexico or something and just doing like random hikes from one spot or whatever, and even racking up the same miles, right? Yeah. You could you could easily do. Yeah, no, it's it's super interesting. Um, okay, so you've done some of these hikes with your partner and, so, and this last one you did solo though. Uh, yeah. Before we get into the solo, because I want to dive into that. Uh, how do you deal with a partner on the trail? Because I don't think Peter and I have ever made it more than like four days without me like stalking off and just furious. So yeah, yeah. I do want to answer that. First, I just want to say a couple words on that. The question you asked a little while ago, the other, the best way to have space in your life besides arranging your work to do that is to try to have as few payments on things as possible. And if you have an apartment, if you can rent it, or if you have a house, if you're okay with other people using your stuff, that's the, I feel like healthcare is one of the biggest expenses. So if you can figure out something around that, uh, and then which sometimes cap catastrophic or like travel insurance can help you do. Uh, and then if you can not have car payments or house payments, either because someone else is, is leasing it or borrowing it from you um, or subletting. And I think that's, 
a lot, I think a lot more people, there's a lot of people that this is not available for because of real constraints, but there's a lot more people that it is than do it. And I think that's Mm -hmm. that, that question to really push. You might have things in your life that you really could change that you could take this time. Um, Oh, I like that. That's a very good practical point. And I think, uh, yeah, especially with homes and stuff, most people get very like settled into where they are and like, they can't fathom doing that. We've rented our place out. We have friends who went and lived in Spain for a year to ride bikes and they did the exact same thing, like rented it. And they had like a proper house. Like we have a condo, so that's easier in some ways. Um, But yeah, they rented out the house, no issues and like worked out great for them. So it's definitely a possibility that feels weird to think about. Yeah, (laughs) can I buy a piece of furniture, I'll be like, are you okay with someone else using it? Otherwise don't buy it. Cause you always, cause it's important to me enough to have that flexibility. Last time on the PCT, we had someone who rented our, our place and also took care of our cat. It's great. Nice. Super Hear that DW? Could be you next time. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. the partner question. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's been interesting with my partner cause I feel like we've gone, we've gone a lot of trips together and there's been times when that's been really seamless and easy. And there's been times when it's been more difficult. And a lot of that depends on where our relationship is and where we are in our lives. And so I think that's the first thing is realizing like, if it's hard one trip, that doesn't mean it's going to be hard every trip. Or if it's easy one trip, that doesn't mean that's going to be easy like that for the rest of your life. So I think this idea of where are you at the moment? And then how do you deal with that? And trying to not, this is something that I'm trying to learn, not try to bring along the baggage of, of all these other trips, but just figure and it's hard, but be in the trip that you're in now and figure out what you need to solve about that trip now. And I think especially for, um, I've been with my partner since college. So we've been together for 15 years. And especially with that, this idea of letting go of past selves, especially past travel companions, good or bad, and realizing like who you are now and what kind of travel companion you are now. Because also the way, you know, we change together, but we also change separately. So how mm-hmm. a lot of how we travel has stayed consistent, but there's, it we used to be the same pace. We're no longer the same pace. That's actually a really interesting difficulty. And so we used to um, be able to hike sort of within like hailing distance the entire time. And now we have to figure out new ways of hiking together because I hike much faster than he does. And right. so, um, and part of that is the same way that you would hike with friends that you meet on the trail. So saying, okay, we're gonna meet up at breakfast. Like, okay, we're gonna meet up at lunch. Here's where we're gonna do dinner. It's a little more complicated. My preference would be that we hiked at the same pace and we stayed together, but we don't anymore. So like, that's something that we need to change. Mm-hmm. It's funny, my like one rule for traveling with with a partner is always like, you can't use the phrase you always or you never like those are not allowed. (laughs) Because it's so easy to bring in this thing you did six years ago. And (laughs) we're upset about that. And yeah, yeah. well, I like that you actually do hike at different paces. I know it's, it's obviously like much more fun when you're together. But I think even just the willingness to hike at different paces is a really big deal because most people will assume that you have to be together the entire time. Yeah. And I think we, so we're hoping to do another trip this summer if all goes well, and this will be, it'll be nice. It's this iterative process on the, on the PCT, we're still trying to hike together on the, we did the Colorado trail, which is a sort of about five week trail. And that's when it was clear that we really were having different paces, but we still hadn't gotten to, to really separating. And I think now that I've done the CDT alone, I think that we'll approach the, the PNT differently and talk about how we can both get what we want out of any a given day because we we also have different hiking styles like for him he wants to wake up and just go and he hikes a slower per mile but wants to just go until the sun is about to go down and for me I want to like hike 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 and then I want to jump in this 
stream and then like, maybe there's a lake later and then I want to like take my shoes off and put them in and I'm gonna hike really fast and then I want to sit and draw and then I want to hike really fast and then I want to get into camp with enough time to like enjoy this beautiful spot that I've chosen for my camp it's just all very very different and so I think yeah constantly troubleshooting how to make both of those fit because the overall goal is still to be able to to have the experience together mm-hmm. yeah yeah so how how does one decide to do the continental divide solo because that's a big decision. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the PCT was like the dream boat. It was like, oh my goodness, I want to be the person who does the PCT and I want to do the PCT. And it was a dream for a while. And we did the PCT. And when I finished the PCT, I was like, I don't think I need to do anything that long again for a long, long time. Like that's a very long time to be hiking. And it felt like the first, you know, the first two months of this honeymoon, and then you still got two and a half months, you've still got quite a long time to be on trail. Uh, and so, and also what we'd heard about the Continental Divide Trail, it's a harder trail, it's a more remote trail, it has a smaller weather window. Um, and we'd met a lot of people who had tried and not been able to finish it. And so when I finished the PCT, my thinking was, why don't I section hike the most beautiful parts at the most beautiful time? Like that sounds like a good way to do the Continental Divide Trail. So I never had it in my mind that it was a trail that I wanted to do. But um, a combination of things happened in my life where things sort of fell apart. So where the PCT felt like it was coming from a moment of triumph of my life really feeling together. I had this career where I could do this. It was great. The CDT really felt like um, I didn't know what else to do with myself. Um, there was some health stuff going on in my family. There was some, you know, there's the COVID lockdown. There's just a lot of different things going on. And um, I knew that was a place where I could be moderately okay. And that in the end, if I kept doing it, things would probably not get worse in general. And also I had the gear, you know, these trails are expensive to do, especially the first time, but once you have all that gear, it's a pretty cheap way to spend six months, you know? So, so I took off and, and did it. And the reason I did it solo is because there's no one in that exact same position to do it with me. And because mm-hmm. I needed it right then in a temporal, like now it was, I was going to wait around to try to find the friend that would do it with me. Okay. Okay. Um, I have so many questions off of that, but the gear one actually like brings, like makes me think about this getting the gear you're right like that is obviously like the biggest barrier for people to get started so where would you fall on like the if someone thinks they want to do these hikes and stuff how do they go about kind of wrangling the stuff is it one of those like you should try borrowing what you can and then buy like the higher quality stuff or like can you start with the cheaper stuff and then slowly like upgrade your stuff which way would you do it if you were like back to zero had no gear and weren't sure if you wanted to continue hiking Yeah, I think if you're not sure if you're going to continue hiking, uh, borrowing is great. I also think in general that fostering a culture of lending gear and borrowing gear is really great because a lot of this stuff, you know, it just becomes obsolete in a pretty short amount of time. And so I try to lend our, on the the PCT, we had a friend who had done the Appalachian Trail uh, previously, and he he lent us a bunch of his gear and offered us a bunch more that we ended up, you know, uh, and that that was great because I hadn't thought about that kind of gear. Like he, he offered us his backpack, which is something interesting. You're so attached to your backpack. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a piece of gear you can clean and lend, you know, that's fine. He gave us um, his sleeping pads. He gave us his uh, stove setup. you know, there's, um, and so now I try to do that for other people because I think it really is a good way to test the gear to see if you like it. And also the march of gear is going to continue onward. So if you've got, and, but then the question is, right, this just gets in this whole, he's great rivers of privilege, who do you know who's doing these trails? Do you have friends or people in your network that have that, um, who can lend you gear? And we were lucky enough to have someone who could. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I think often it's a, it's a hybrid and combo. There's no like one answer. I think if you can uh, borrow gear, that's a great thing to do. If you can, you know, buy some gear, I think buying, if you think you're going to continue using it in some capacity, then buying high quality gear that'll last a long time, I feel like is almost always worth it. Um, mm -hmm. And versatile gear. So it's not, um, so you could, you know, say you're not sure if you're going to hike or not, but you do know that if you spend a lot of money on a nice sleeping bag, you're going to do something with that sleeping bag, right? So there's some things that are more hiking specific and some things that can be more um, useful in a variety of outdoor applications or even indoor applications. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, buying used gear, getting stuff from thrift stores. I mean, some stuff it's worth going super light. You know, you don't need to get super expensive hiking shorts or, you know, or hiking shirts or there's, there's things that you can also save on there. But unfortunately there's no, I wish there was one really like straightforward answer, but I don't think there is because there's so many, there's lots of different pieces of gear that you need and everyone has different things that they care about. And I think that's part of what you learn is like, oh, for some people it really matters to have the tent that they love because that is how they feel comfortable. And for some people they're like, I'm going to cowboy camp. I don't need mm -hmm. a tent or like bring a tarp or whatever. So. Yeah. Now for you, when you were hiking with like with your partner, with friends versus this solo hiking, did that change what like you just mentioned the tent, did it change what was going to make you feel comfortable on the trail? Like, was there anything that you, you would not normally bring that you brought in order to feel comfortable? And I mean, how do you get the terror to me? Like that's a really intimidating thing being alone with your own thoughts in general for four, four months. But then also, I mean, just being a solo woman on the trail, like that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think my biggest regret is not buying a new lighter tent just because my pack was quite heavy. Um, and I was bringing a, a very light tent, but it was a two-person tent. So I brought a fair amount of gear that we would use my partner and I together. And I just brought it solo. And so that mm -hmm. meant that was not so much a problem month one, month two, but around the end of month three, it started feeling like my pack was really heavy. So on this trip, even though part of the joy of it was, I was like, I can just take what I already have. And that lowers the emotional fear. Cause then I feel like if I quit, I didn't just spend a bunch of money on new gear. On the other hand, I wish I had dropped a bunch of money on new gear. So it would have been a lighter, more comfortable experience. I don't know. Um, yeah, there were things. So the things that I was most afraid of hundred percent above absolutely everything else was lightning. Uh, the storms on the continental divide trail are really intense and there's it's, they happen in all the States, but in Colorado, there's a lot of, you know, uh, you'll have, 10 mile stretches above tree line, six mile stretches above tree line. Um, and the storms come in every day. And sometimes it's hard to, it's often hard to, you can't avoid them completely. And so you got to sort of always play this game. Um, and lightning, like thunder and lightning in the mountains when you're exposed is absolutely terrifying. So that was what I was most afraid of. And then secondly, I was afraid of grizzly bears, which as you're hiking on the, the CDT, grizzly bears are a problem. You do need to be aware of them. They start maybe two thirds of the way up the trail if you start at the south like I did at Mexico and start walking up. Um, so there's a lot of a worry about that um, along the way. What every well-meaning middle-aged woman and man in a parking lot told me I should be afraid of was men. And this is really tough. This like these ideas of where the fear comes from. I was really a lot of people spent a lot of time telling me to be afraid and doing it and trying to do it in nice ways, you know, but being like <gasps> by yourself, you're going by yourself. You know, all this fear as a woman traveling solo is, is reflected at you and you got to figure out some way to metabolize it. And I think unfortunately some part of me took some of that fear and was like, I don't think that that fear is grounded in the way these people think it is, but they're throwing a bunch of fear at me. So I'm just going to throw that onto my lightning fear pile. So I think I became wow. more afraid of lightning in this weird, I don't know, I thought a lot about fear on the trail. 
I was also afraid of um, of blowdowns. There's a lot of areas where there's a lot of dead trees, and uh, you know it's unlikely, but people do die from um, from branches and trees falling down. And so it's the funny things that I don't know. There's there's definite dangers to keep aware of, and then um, but then how much weight you give those dangers is really the tough thing because there's no correct answer. No one's going to tell you exactly. You can't know. I mean, it's interesting. We've all been through this experience with the virus of how humans dealing with uncertainty and fear and what the mm -hmm. right call is when there isn't like a, an absolute correct call. And so on the trail, it was just, I feel like it took many metaphorical fears and just makes them really concrete in terms of like bears, lightning and dead trees, as opposed to, you know, some of the more nebulous fears we can deal with um, yeah. when we're not in the black country. Yeah. That is interesting. Like the well-meaning people who say like, you should be afraid of men. Um, it's sort of a weird thing to say to someone who's already in the middle of the hike because you're there. <laughs> like, what, what, you're not going to like get in the car with them and like go home. So it's a very weird thing when you actually think about why someone would say that. Like, that's, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, and we wouldn't, they wouldn't say men, but they would say is like, are you afraid? That sounds so, I would be so scared doing that. And then when you would push it a little bit and you'd be like, what, what would make you afraid? And then it would eventually, you know, this fear to them wasn't even rooted in something particular. But then when you dug into it, it would be like, you know, people, the fear was people and the fear was men and the fear was towns. And like, it did change my uh, behaviors. You know, I never camped near, I did more camping where I would go farther off trail and out of sight when I was alone than I did on the, on the PCT. I would just, you know, wouldn't mind camping in full sight of, of the trail hmm. where, it was, you know, allowed. Um, and then the one difference in, in gear is I did hang my food a lot more often. And I started carrying a bear bag way more, way sooner in the trail. Um, just for animals in general, because it was easier to get a good night's sleep knowing that I didn't have food in my tent, um, especially after a pack of coyotes went right by my tent one night in the same clearing and were very, very loud. And at that point I was like, you know what, we're just gonna call it part of the sleep kit to carry the weight of a bear bag. And it's just gonna be part of trying to sleep better. I think that's, that's a good call. <laughs> Now, you mentioned it a couple of times, the idea of, you know, you knew people who didn't make it through this trail or, you know, you knew if you didn't make it like to finish the trail, you wouldn't have spent money on on new kit and stuff. It's a really interesting thing starting something like this with the idea still, like kind of floating in your head that you might not finish it. Did that change like the day to day approach? And did you ever have any points where you were kind of contemplating phoning it in and or phoning for your, your pickup? Yeah, the this was the only trail that I've started um, when I have I felt like there was a good chance I wouldn't finish it, and then or when I was like trying to soften that blow if it should come before I even started by the way that I talked about and planned for and thought about the trail, um, and it's also the only trail that I really have had a lot of times when I thought that I I just might not finish it because um, I've done the the Pacific Crest Trail as a long one. We did the Camino de Santiago. In Spain, we've bicycled across the country. We did the Colorado Trail. We've done like all these, and all of them have been pretty much a lark. It's like, oh, of course we're gonna finish, you know, unless we like get injured or something like that. But this one was a real, it was really tough. And it was tough doing it alone. There was, I mean, there's moments where it's it's brilliant. You know that there's probably no one within five miles of you. You know, so so often you're like, I'm completely alone out here. And there's moments where that's absolutely amazing. And I feel like the the first month was really quite cool to have that much time solo and to go into towns and out of towns and just completely be your own master and, and head off into this wilderness you'd never been into again and again and again and again. Um, 
But by the third month, I was going pretty nutty. And also by the third month, I was getting close to bear territory. And so this question of, is it smart enough for me to continue alone in grizzly bear territory if I haven't met other hikers? Um, so they're definitely around the three month mark. There was a lot of thoughts about quitting. And then beautifully, I met another group of hikers who uh, everyone sort of in this group came together around the same time. And it was all people who'd been hiking alone who were like, nope, grizzly bears are scary. We should hike together. And so that both the safety around the grizzly bears, because there really are compelling numbers that um, over three hikers will likely not have a bad encounter with a grizzly. Rather, if you're hiking alone, then it's quite possible a, a grizzly encounter could go south. Um, that, and then it was just, it was really time not to be alone in my own head anymore. So once I met up with them, I was not worried ever again about not finishing the trail, but mm -hmm. there's definitely times. Yeah. And you, you live in New York city now, which is really interesting to me for someone who obviously loves these, you know, solo adventures in the wilderness. And I think this is like such an interesting question of identity, right? Because I, it's, I'm always saying, and this is why I wrote the Shred Girl series, like it's so possible to have these different facets of yourself because someone would expect on paper someone who does the hikes like you do would be living in like a tiny cabin up in the Adirondacks or something and you know no one around for miles but you live in the city um do you ever think about that or how does that yeah, play out and I, think, I think also it's this idea of like yeah you're not you're never stuck in time right you're always changing and I think in my 20s there was really something huge that worked for me about this binge bust cycle I was in of doing this huge binge in the outdoors and sunlight every single day on my skin. And then doing this, this binge of really urban living of, you know, parks and so close to, uh, to all these friends and a really, really active social life and, um, and all these museums that I would go to all the time and these classes and lunch and just, you know, eating it all up. And I think that worked for quite a long time. And I think as I've moved into my thirties, I'm 34 now, um, it's less appealing. And so I think it's time to find something that's a little more balanced between the two of them. And I don't know how I'll feel in my forties or my fifties or my sixties or, but letting myself be like, yeah, that, that was a thing that did work really interestingly for a while and feels like it's not working quite as well anymore. And so it's time to figure out something else. Mm -hmm. I like that you can kind of keep doing this. And you've mentioned it a few times, this like constant evolution of like who you were last year is not necessarily going to be the same person you were this year. And I mean, we felt the same way, you know, when we got our dog and stuff, it kind of like forced us to ground ourselves a bit more because we were in that very like, like binging on these adventure things and then coming home and being like, oh, like we're home community. Great. And then like two weeks later, we'd be like, and we're off again. <laughs> So we did more like short, like in, out, in, out. Um, and it got exhausting, to be honest. So yeah. that's really nice to kind of be moving into this, this different thing and be okay with the fact that I can move into a different period of life for sure. Yeah. And I think interestingly, we, after the Pacific Coast Trail, I was really ready to, to calm down and we were um, planning on starting a family. And then unfortunately we haven't been able to, and that's been a real really difficult situation and that is part of the reason that I went off to hike the Continental Divide Trail and that you know though we're still hoping that that's going to be possible it flipped this what was becoming the sort of nesting instinct to having had these adventures to calm down for a while and then what we were hoping and expecting from that time didn't happen and so it's been interesting watching me flip back into, well, you know, fuck it, then get me out into the woods, you know, and like going back to this, like it, you know, there's, there's times for all the different things. And sometimes you got to let your, I don't know, I feel like sometimes I have to let my, myself lead. Cause I don't know where I'm going, but then eventually I'm like, oh, that does make sense. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And this is, this is kind of like a more generic question that I meant to ask before, but can you talk through like what a day in the life looked like when you were hiking solo? Like how, you know, what time were you waking up? Were you waking up with a clock? When did you do any cartooning? How, did, yeah. How did it go? Absolutely. Yeah. So we would wake up around, uh, five 30 usually would wake up early, um, in Colorado, it would be as early as possible. So you could get as much hiking done as possible before maybe a storm came in and slowed you down. Um, in the desert, it was as early as possible before the sun came out and made it really hard to safely go forward for a while. Um, so in the desert would take siestas, um, and then in New Mexico, and then in Colorado would, um, sometimes have to sit under a branch getting rained on for a while as it like thundered around until you could go forward again. Um, but yeah, I would wake up, it would take me probably about half an hour to, to pack everything up. I like just doing a bar for breakfast um, and just roll out. For the first two months, I was stoveless. Um, so I didn't have a stove at all. Um, but even if I have a stove, I don't usually do any sort of breakfast. I like getting getting out there and feeling that nice, nice puritan, like, oh, I did things in the morning. I already had some mine. <laughs> um, again, right or wrong, that's an itch that like feels good to scratch, so I do it. Um, so then... Yeah, we'd usually take a, a midday break. We'd take a lunch at some point um, and draw over lunch. Uh, by the evening, I'd be too. I'd be really tired and wouldn't be good at drawing. So lunchtime was definitely the best time for me to draw. Um, and would hike when I was hiking by myself. Would hike pretty, pretty deep into the evening. Um, sometimes setting up my tent just before it got dark. Sometimes a little earlier. But I ended up. It was funny because when we were on the Pacific Crest Trail, all I wanted was to stop and get camp early enough to hang out in camp a little bit because that was mm -hmm. sort of a vestige of how I used to backpack in these sort of like five-day week-long trips, this beautiful getting into camp relaxation stage. Um, but the, the Continental Divide Trail, I was doing more miles. I was doing 25 miles a day by yeah. when I got up to speed. And so honestly, at my pace, that's most of the day. And so it was sort of, yeah. I don't know, it was a lot of walking all day long. Yeah. Well, so this is kind of bringing, me, bringing this interesting idea up of like, you're, you're getting out of the city, you're getting away from the rat race, you're getting away from like the hustle culture, but you're hustling on the trail. Yeah. <laughs> it's an all day, every day, go, go, go. Does it feel different though? Like, are they two different types of hustle or is it all just kind of that same kind of competitive with yourself thing? Yeah, I think there's definitely something the same, um, especially with this trail, because this trail is so hard to complete. Um, like the Pacific Coast Trail, we were doing 20 miles a day, sort of the gold standard for finishing. But on the Continental Divide Trail, it's more like 25, just because it's a longer trail to, to stuff in. Um, and then when we do the, I'm curious for the Pacific Northwest Trail this summer, because it, it's a shorter trail, and so there'll be more time. And so I'm hoping that means that we can get into more like, yes, we're going, but like also we'll take this break and take that break. And, you know, maybe we'll just hang out on trail for a day. Um, but yeah, there's definitely something that is uh, obnoxiously uh, uh, getting stuff done oriented. I do a lot of questioning of this, especially as a freelancer, especially as someone who you know thinks a lot about how the work, I price all my own work, it fits into this capitalist system. I think there's a lot of problems with that, but there's also a lot of good things that come with that. How do you think about that it's both been my greatest boon to be able to get stuff done? And it's also, you know, something that's been enculturated in me in a way that is bad in a lot of ways and so how do you balance all those things and so I think about that a lot on trail but I will say even though it's hustling it's so much easier than quote-unquote real life like I love not dealing with emails I love you dealing with so many fewer 
people and voices and words and screens and um, scheduling things. And like, there's so much mentally, it feels a lot easier. Mm -hmm. uh, but, I mean, I guess in some ways you're just shifting a lot of the work onto your body. And so your mind has some work to do, but your body has a lot of work to do. And compared to life in New York, where your body has some work to do and your mind has a lot to do, I think it's a really nice uh, switch from that. Yeah. And how did, how did it feel when you finish? Because your body must have been pretty exhausted, but you had to come back to the real world, which must be, I can't even fathom what the inbox looked like. Yeah, it's wild. You finish and uh, at least for me, everything's overwhelming. You know, being in a supermarket is incredibly overwhelming. Uh, just the proximity of that many other people coming to New York and being on the subway is overwhelming. You know, all these, the sidewalk is overwhelming. Um, and then, yeah, the inbox is overwhelming. You know, it's a lot of, it's a, it was a tougher reentry for me from the CDT definitely uh, than any other trail. Mm -hmm. And then your body goes insane. Your body is like, what is happening? Um, <laughs> and so there's this funny, well, you know what's happening, right? So there's this funny tail down of starting to eat less food and you're, you're also, you know, not doing the miles that you were doing. And there's, there's moods, ups and downs. And yeah, it's kind of a wild ride. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine because I know there's even just like the fact that you're exhausted from doing the physical work, but that you're coming back into the mental work that needs to get started. And you'd think that they're two separate systems, but they're not. Yeah. <laughs> it's one very, like very attached, connected system. Um, now, did you also, did you find that when you finished anything in your body kind of like fell apart a little bit. Cause I often find like at the end of big blocks, that's like when I, as soon as I'm done, that's when I either get sick or like my knee goes or like blisters on the last like hour or something. So was that, uh, was that the case? We definitely, my whole trip only got sick right at the end. Um, so something was going around and it is true. I wasn't sick the entire rest of the time that I was going, we all got a cold or something. And it was, yeah, I think there was that element of, of your body, you make this sort of agreement with your body and your body's like, okay, I'll get you there. And then we're done. Then I'm like taking time to rest. But the other interesting thing is the, these trails, and I would be interested to hear this um, compares to the ways that you use your body, but the, the first trail, it took a long time to get up to 20 miles an hour. Like it took a lot, like, and then 20 miles a day, and then 20 miles a day was a lot to do. And then on this trail, I wasn't in particularly good shape at the beginning of it. Like on the Pacific Coast Trail, it took us maybe a month to get up to 20 miles a day or a month and a half. It took a long time. Um, you know, we were up to like 16 or 17 or you were getting there. On this trail, I was in particularly good shape, but it took me three days. And then I was doing 20 miles and then pretty quickly I was doing 25. And so there's this element of your body recognizes the thing that you're doing with it and really is like, okay, we're doing this again. Sure. And here I am. And so while at the end of the Pacific Crest Trail, my body was like, well, I'm exhausted. At the end of this trail, my body was like, what's next? Are we doing more? You know, really, I feel like I've, I've uh, convinced my body that it's a good this thing. what do. it does. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Now this, this past weekend, I had like back-to-back -back long runs and normally I have, you know, like a 16 to 20 mile and then like a 10 mile. And this weekend I had a 30 mile and a 20 mile and I was very like stressed about it going in. And then, you know, yesterday I'm like at mile 15 of the 20 mile and I was like, oh, don't even feel bad right now. This is weird. Um, and it's, it's this very confusing moment of realizing like, holy crap, my body can do that. Well, that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, okay. We also didn't mention, how do you, what do you eat? So we know you have the bar for breakfast. What else do you eat? Because there's, there's like a 
um, what am I looking for? There's a weird math game you're playing with like how much food you're carrying and how much you can eat between, you know, restocks. Yeah. Yeah. For people who like board games, it is a fascinating resource puzzle, right? Because the food question is a question of time, money, and nutrition uh, and preference, right? So if you have a bunch of time before the trail, you can, the, the best way to feed yourself nutritionally is spending a bunch of time before the trail. So some people make all their own meals. That's beautiful. Or you can order components to make meals um, of, you know, dried beans, dried rice, these things that are light, but you can make them delicious. Um, you can mail them out to you. Uh, you can, you can plan well, or planning takes a long time. You cannot plan and then uh, just go with it as you go. And, and most people do like hybrids of various, uh, various ways of doing things. It becomes easier and easier in these trails to buy food as you go, which I like, we did boxes that first trip that we did right after I graduated college. And, you know, the trip fell apart and it meant that these boxes were then expenses that, you know, we didn't end up using or they were mailed to these other places. So if the trip goes south, boxes can be a real, or the trip changes course, boxes can be a real issue. And so I like to buy as I go. When you buy as you go, it means you're dealing with supermarkets. And so in the bigger towns, you can buy exactly what you want. And in the smaller towns, sometimes it's pretty rough. So I would, um, but like when I was going stoveless, it was a lot of uh, ramen packets in cold water, uh, mashed potato, powdered mashed potatoes in cold water. Um, I would do a lot of like uh, salami and cheese and crackers and um, bars and uh, yeah, this trip. So other trips, it has been more like what's delicious. So on the Pacific Coast show, we had a stove and we would cook mac and cheese. We would cook, you know, this rice and bean thing, whatever. Uh, and then on CDT, it really was like, how do I get enough fuel and just keep going and keep it as light as possible? And so mm -hmm. I would really have the sort of more junky through hiker diet. You know, I did a lot of Pop-Tarts. I say bar, but often the bar was like Pop-Tarts um, and, you know, just packs of Oreos and like family sized bags of chips. Chips are amazing calories per ounce. Um, but then so that I can do that with my body for a little while and then my body starts really revolting. And so about two months in, I suddenly had this moment where I was like, I need my stove now. And so I got my stove, my partner mailed my stove to me. And, uh, and once I got my stove, if you have the stove, and I think we talked about this once, if you have a koozie for it, which yes. is this, like keeps the heat in the stove. So you get a koozie that fits right around your pot. Um, and it means that you can actually cook things on trail like quinoa and farro and these whole grains, which at that point, my body was just really desperate for. So I spent a couple of weeks sort of fattening myself up on better food. Um, and then, then it got a little messy. My plan was to send my stove away, but just as I sent my stove away, I started hiking with this, my grizzly friends, I called them this group of hikers that I, I finished out the trail with and they all had stoves and, uh, it's very hard to be the hiker without a stove around a oh. bunch of hikers. So, so at that point I, uh, I ended up a friend of mine, we shared our stove and I got a new pot and, and, uh, and did heat. So it was a little bit, they went back and forth, I think. And that's the other thing of with this trail with some other with the Pacific Coast trail, we planned it out ahead of time and that was a great way to do it. And things went basically to plan on the Continental Divide Trail. I decided to do it maybe a couple of weeks before I got on trail, which is very, very short. Right. So it's very not terribly well planned. It was just sort of like, well, we'll see how this goes. And so there's a lot more troubleshooting along the way um, in terms of gear, in terms of uh, all trail things and definitely in terms of diet. Yeah. Um, well, we'll add the PSA that that works if you're an experienced hiker, probably not a good recommendation for that. The new absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and you also managed to put together a, a cartoon newsletter and uh, were cartooning from the trail as well. Um, like what, what made you decide to do that? 
Yeah, so I'm a, a freelance cartoonist in um, for my job, which is incredible. Um, and so I draw cartoons for magazines, um, the most notable, which is the New Yorker, but also anyone else who will buy a cartoon, I will sell them a cartoon happily. And, um, <laughs> And, you know, that that kind of artistic career, I would say you have to be as creative about the career as you are about the art that you create. And so it's always this hodgepodge of um, you know, doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little teaching, a little um, illustration, a little uh, et cetera. And so part, you know, as this sort of master plan being like, okay, I love hiking and the cartooning is wonderful. And so just finding more and more ways to integrate the two of them um, just as a way to give myself more and more freedom and flexibility to do the things that I love to do. So some of the cartoons I draw on trail are, are for me and then I see where they go. Sometimes they're more directed to try to sell to a certain outlet or for a certain purpose. Um, I have a lot of drawings and notes from this trail that I'm playing around with and figuring out what to do with next. Um, but yeah, with the, the cartooning, I'm sort of always producing. And so it'd be very strange not to be cartooning as I did anything, especially anything as momentous as you know, the crazy mind twist that is a trail like this. Um, and then also there's, you know, I make some money from it. So I write some of it off for taxes. So all these little Darn things, right. little things there. <laughs> yes. We definitely have very parallel lives with that. Uh, me with the writing, you with that. I was just talking to my dad yesterday. I was saying, even if I had gone a completely different direction with everything I do now, it's like, yeah, you'd still be writing. Like, it's just, that's a non-negotiable for, for me. And I imagine drawing is the exact same for you. Exactly. Um, so, okay. Talk about the, the stuff you have going on now. Like where can people see all of these cartoons? Where can people find you? You have some courses. Let's hear it. Yeah, absolutely. So the easiest place to see my cartoons is on Instagram. And so that's at my name, Kendra underscore Allenby at Instagram. And that'll be a mix of the all the different kinds of work I do. So that's a nice way to see a variety of it. And also whenever I'm gearing up to go on a new trail, that'll have information about how to join the newsletter or the, you know, some of the trail cartoons I share on there as well. Um, I am currently teaching, if anyone lives in New York and wants to do a bunch of drawing this spring um, and winter, I'm doing a travel drawing class at the 92Y, which is in Manhattan. And uh, maybe there's a place that we can share the link. I don't know what you Yes, definitely. We'll put that in the show notes for sure. And yeah. I would like you to do a virtual course at some point so I can actually be part of it. That would be cool. So Absolutely. start, start thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I wouldn't, I would not be at all surprised if that's coming down the pike. Excellent. Oh, amazing. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on. This has been awesome. And now I'm afraid I'm going to be like planning a, a through hike here. This is, this is a bad news episode for me. <laughs> yes. Oh, you said they're so delightful. Mainly if, for nothing else, you should do it just so you don't have to answer email for six months. It's really worth it. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this or any of our past episodes, do us a solid and leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And check out our book, Becoming a Consummate Athlete, over at consummateathlete.com. Questions or comments? Find us over on Instagram, at consummateathlete, and we will see you next week. <laughs>